friends and grace and peace to you. I am Reverend Beverly Edwards, the Associate Pastor for Pastoral Care of this church, and it is my great pleasure to welcome you to this service from wherever you are. This is Reverend Rebecca's sabbatical time, and so between me and Reverend Floyd, we will be doing the services for the next several weeks, and it is such a pleasure to be with you. No matter who you are, or who you love, or where you come from, or what you believe, you are welcome here in the United Congregational Church of Little Compton. And now, let us worship God. Greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Rick Floyd and one last time I am the guest worship leader for today's virtual worship. Your pastor, Reverend Rebecca, will be returning to the pulpit next week on July 18th. We hope you'll join us in person at church for our grand reopening and building dedication. Please RSVP at the link on your screen. I want to thank your virtual worship team for helping me put together these nine virtual worship services during the time I have been filling in for Rebecca. I want to especially thank Lily and Cameron Clark for their talent and commitment. And now I welcome you to join us for worship, wherever you are and whoever you are, no matter what you look like or who you love, wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here at the United Congregational Church of Little Compton, Rhode Island. We're glad you're here. Let us worship God.
Let us pray. Steadfast God, your prophets set the plumb line of your righteousness and truth in the midst of your people. Grant us the courage to judge ourselves against it. Straighten all that is crooked or warped within us until our hearts and souls stretch upright, blameless and holy, to meet the glory of Christ. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, who taught us that when we pray, we should say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. reading is from Amos chapter 7 verses 7 through 17. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line and a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, see, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass them by. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. Amaziah complains to the king. Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to King Jeroboam of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the very center of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah, earn your bread there, and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered Amaziah, I am no prophet, nor a prophet's son. But I am a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees, and the Lord took me from, the fo from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of God. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore thus says the Lord, Your wife shall become a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, 
and your land shall be parceled out by line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall go surely into exile away from its land. Mark 6, chapters 14 through 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer had been raised from the dead, and for this reason these powers are at work in him. But others said, It is Elijah. And others said, It is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, even half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? She replied, The head of John the baptizer. Immediately she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Today's readings are both about prophets. What is a prophet? 
The conventional view is that a prophet foretells the future. But in the Bible, prophets are more like warnings. Prophets are more like the parent saying, if you continue behaving this way, this is the inevitable outcome. They are the proverbial canaries in the coal mine who discern the gas leak and the dangers of the gas leak before others are aware of it. We have two prophets today. We have the 7th century BC prophet Amos and we have John the Baptist who, according to Christian tradition, was the last of the prophets. I'm going to talk mostly about Amos, who I think has a lot to say for our time in his prophes prophesying to Israel. So, the book of Amos is a series of sayings called oracles that spoke to a particular situation. And sometimes we know the situation and other times we don't. So who was Amos? Well, we don't really know a whole lot about Amos other than what he tells us in the text. And we do know that he was from Tekoa or Tekoya, a little town a couple score kilometers outside of Jerusalem. He describes himself as a herdsman, a keeper of the sheep and a tender of sycamore trees. Beyond that, we only know what he says in each particular oracle or situation. And we try to figure out what we know of the history of the time from other books of the Bible. Sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. So even with the little we know about Amos, we know he prophesied in the middle of the 8th century before the Christian era, and he was, as I said, a shepherd. You need to know that by the time of Amos, the nation of Israel had been divided into two kingdoms. Judah in the south with Jerusalem as its capital and Ephraim to the north with Samaria as its capital. Just to confuse us, Ephraim is sometimes called Israel, which is also the name of the whole thing. When Amos prophesies against Israel in today's reading, he is referring to the northern kingdom and not to the whole nation. Ironically, Amos was from the southern kingdom of Judah, but God sent him to prophesy in the northern kingdom. We know that he prophesied during the reigns of King Jeroboam II in Ephraim slash Israel and King Uzziah of Judah. You also need to know that in Amos's time, the northern kingdom of Ephraim had grown very rich during the reign of Jeroboam II, as it was nicely placed near the mercantile powerhouse of Phoenicia on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. The Phoenicians were great seafarers and traded all across the Mediterranean Sea 
bringing goods of all kinds into the region. Ephraim was just to the east of Phoenicia, and many trade routes from the coast had to cross it. Subsequently, it became very, very wealthy. But the wealth was not evenly distributed. The rich growing increasingly wealthy and the poor struggling to survive. What today we would call income inequality or the wealth gap. The prophet Amos prophesied against the wealthy for their greed and their lack of concern for the poor and the vulnerable. He also prophesied against corrupt government practices like courts that protected the rich against the poor for bribes. He describes in chapter 8 how economic tyrants, quote, bought the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, end quote. Amos saw this injustice and corruption threatening the very existence of Israel, both north and south, because the nation was not living up to the conditions of its covenant with God. Now there are two schools of thought about Israel's special covenant with God, or I should say in the Bible, in the Old Testament, there were two schools of thought about Israel's special covenant with God. The first one, there were those who believed that God's choosing Israel was unconditional and could never be revoked. The other opinion, which Amos shared, was that Israel's election from God came with responsibilities. There is a very important concept in the Old Testament around the Hebrew word tzedakah, which is most often translated as righteousness but can also mean justice, integrity, prosperity, and salvation. Sedekah, righteousness, is an attribute of God, but it is also the order of things that God has put into place for the well-being of Israel. Amos believed the corruption and tyranny of the wealthy merchants and the corrupt royal courtiers threatened the righteousness of the nation, and he spoke out against it in God's name. And by what measure can one judge whether a nation is righteous? The test for national righteousness is how it treats the most vulnerable of its citizens. In patriarchal ancient Israel, the most vulnerable were widows and orphans who had no male to give them status or protect them. Other vulnerable people were sojourners, that is, foreign migrants who had no claim to the land. And finally, as in every society, the poor were vulnerable. This collection of the last, the least, and the lost were being abused, and Amos saw that as a threat to the integrity of the nation and the continuance of their covenant with God. In some of Amos's oracles, God calls for national repentance, a turning away from injustice and corruption. Repentance means changing direction. But in our passage for today, it seems God has had enough and brings judgment against his people. Let's take a look at our passage. It describes a quite dramatic showdown between Amos and the royal chaplain Amaziah, the priest of Bethel. Imagine it as a professional wrestling match, one that is very much a mismatch on the face of it. You need to know that after Israel had been split in two, Jeroboam I had set up cultic shrines in Bethel and Dan to consolidate political power through religious means by competing with the cultic center 
of Judah and Jerusalem. This first Jeroboam also put the old Canaanite symbol of fertility, the bull, a literal golden calf in the cultic centers that he created in the north. The high places God refers to were the old Canaanite deities, was where the old Canaanite deities were worshipped. For the old Canaanite religion had never gone away. It was an agricultural religion of fertility and fecundity and remained popular. You may recall an earlier prophetic showdown around this issue when Elijah went up against the priests of Baal. So Amaziah is the royal priest in the cultic center of Bethel where they worshiped an image of a golden calf. And he works for and is a spokesman for the king, the second Jeroboam. You can see there is a bit of a power imbalance for this showdown. Amaziah represents the king and the national official religion, the, the dominant power of the day. And Amos is just a shepherd from away, as we used to say when I lived in Maine. Nonetheless, God calls and sends Amos up to Ephraim, Israel, to deliver an oracle of judgment. It takes the form of a vision. In an act of prophetic imagination, Amos sees God standing next to a building and holding a plumb line in his hand. Uh, do, you, do you know what a plumb line is? The builder's plumb line was a weighted string used to make sure the vertical lines are straight and the building is made correctly. Amos's vision implies that Israel was built correctly but now is out of line, off kilter, crooked. Its righteousness or integrity was so compromised that it was beyond repair. God says through Amos he will destroy the idolatrous high places and the corrupt sanctuaries and he will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. These are unbearable words to Amaziah and he reports them to King Jeroboam. He says of Amos, the land cannot bear all his words. Then he tells Amos to leave Ephraim and go back to Judah. Go home. He says to Amos, and I quote, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. End quote. Then Amos answered Amaziah, quote, I am no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I am a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. And the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, go, prophesy to my people Israel, end quote. What does Amos mean when he says he is not a prophet, since clearly he is a spokesperson for God? The most likely meaning is that he is distinguishing himself from Amaziah, who was a professional court chaplain. Amos is saying, I am just a layman, a shepherd that God called to speak on God's behalf. It's quite a dramatic episode, but what is the takeaway for us? It is always tricky to make strict analogies between ancient Israel and contemporary America, but I do have two big ideas that arise from this text that I think are relevant for our time. The first is the danger of religious nationalism. The rulers of Israel in Amos' time had used religion to consolidate political power. Jeroboam I wanted the same kind of prestige 
that Jerusalem in the southern kingdom had as a cultic center. So he built shrines at Bethel and Dan that were idolatrous. Amaziah was his court prophet, speaking on behalf of the regime. But Amaziah was a false prophet, so God enlists Amos to speak on God's behalf. Today, there is a strong movement among many evangelical Christians who seek to turn America into a so-called Christian nation. They often claim, against all the facts, that the founders and framers of our country were Christian and intended us to be a Christian nation. It is true that many of the founders were Christians of one sort or another, but many of them were deists and intentionally put in our founding document protections against government interference in religion and religious interference in government, what we call the separation of church and state. Today's Christian nationalism is a very bad idea. For one thing, when they say Christian, they don't mean Christians like me or you, but Christians like them with very rigid doctrines, a very narrow way of interpreting the Bible, and a freighted right-wing political agenda. Furthermore, there is more than a touch of racism in Christian nationalism, which has a long history of white supremacy. By Christian nation, many of them mean white Christian nation. Furthermore, there is also more than a touch of misogyny in Christian nationalism in doctrines such as complementarianism, men being uh, having different roles from women and men being the head over women. Your pastor, my daughter, Rebecca, would be out in their idea of Christian America. Uh, so would Reverend Bev. In their Christian nation, quote, unquote, there would be no women deacons, no women preachers, and wives would be required to submit to their husbands. You wouldn't want to be in my shoes when I tell my wife that I am the head of the household and she must submit to my will. And you can bet there would be no right for gay marriage in this, quote, Christian nation, unquote, and if they could harness the power of the state to enforce their social policies, they could make it illegal to have an abortion and they could limit immigration for non-Christian minority groups. And if this sounds far-fetched, I can assure you it is not. There are thousands of pulpits all over America that are pushing these very ideas this morning, and you can be sure that they are not hearing about God's plumb line from the book of Amos. The founders were rightly suspicious of giving any religion a privileged place in American life. You know, I recently learned something very interesting about Billy Graham. Did you know he was friendly with American presidents from Harry Truman right through Barack Obama and served as an informal advisor to them? But did you know the one president who never invited Graham to the White House? Can you guess? It was Jimmy Carter. And that may seem strange and counterintuitive since both Graham and Carter were evangelical Christians. But the thing is, Jimmy Carter is a Baptist. And Baptists historically have been very wary of religious entanglement with government. Roger Williams left our theocratic Massachusetts Bay Colony to come here to Rhode Island so that he could have separation of church and state and freedom from governmental interference in religious matters. Interesting, isn't it? Now, I don't want to pick on poor Billy Graham, but it seems to me he was more like a court chaplain, more like Amaziah than a prophet like Amos. 
Did you ever criticize any of his president friends for some of their unjust and indefensible policies? Not that I can recall. Anyway, back to our story. Whatever happened to Amaziah? Amos says to Amaziah, quote, Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall become a prostitute in the city and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword and your land shall be parceled out by line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land." End quote. Harsh, very harsh. The implication is that by refusing to hear God's word of judgment, Amaziah himself, the false prophet of the golden calf, will meet a harrowing fate. Did Amos's prophecy come true? Not right away. Things often unfold slowly in God's time, but yes, Amaziah suffered the same fate as all of Israel when it fell to its enemies, the Babylonians. And his wife was disgraced, and his heirs were slain, and his property was confiscated by the victors, and he was taken into exile, the home of unclean deities and there he died. His priesthood came to an ignominious end. My point, and I do have one, is that religious nationalism is a bad idea. The second takeaway from this episode is about righteousness. God is righteous and demands righteousness. So while being a Christian nation is a bad idea, being a righteous nation is a good one. This idea of societal righteousness was important to our Puritan ancestors, and though it has never been fully realized, it remains in the DNA of American identity. For example, Dr. King powerfully employed this biblical notion in his plea to our national conscience during the struggle for civil rights, a struggle that continues. And the litmus test that the prophets used is still the right one. This is the question. How does a nation treat its most vulnerable members? And who are the most vulnerable in our society today? as in Amos's time, children and migrants for another. Who else is vulnerable in our society? Religious minorities are vulnerable. The FBI has reported a dramatic rise in hate crimes in the last several years. Anti-Semitism and attacks on Muslims have increased. And we are in the midst of a national rethinking about the way our law enforcement officials treat racial minorities. And our income inequality is reminiscent of Amos's condemnation of the greedy rich of his day who could bribe courts in their favor. In our time, the super rich can and do buy politicians and elections. So I would say that we are failing the litmus test for national righteousness. It is true our building was never entirely straight from the beginning. When the Constitution was written, we had enslaved human beings who were considered three-fifths of a person. Only men who owned property could vote. 
But we have come a long way since then, and it looked for a while like the plumb line might eventually find that our house was no longer crooked. But these advancements are never purely linear. They must be fought for and worked for. And today we are on many fronts moving backwards in justice and righteousness. And it is important to say that the idea of a righteous nation is not limited to one faith. Christians, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and secular people of goodwill can all work toward a society that cares for and protects its most vulnerable members. But I do think there is a special role for the church in that this notion of social righteousness is part of our story, as we see in Amos and in the teachings and actions of Jesus. And when we were baptized, we all promised, quote, resist the powers of evil and injustice, end quote. It is my fervent hope and prayer that the Church of Jesus Christ can be a community that seeks righteousness and that we can hold up the plumb line of God's righteousness to challenge and confront injustice and evil wherever we find it. Because a pressing question for our time is this, can the soul of a nation be considered sound if it mistreats its most vulnerable members? The answer might be unbearable. Amen. Let us pray. Holy One, draw near to your people and hear our prayers. We give you thanks and praise for all the ways you provide for us. We thank you for the beauty of creation and the wonder of living. We thank you for the love of our family and our friends. We thank you for the mission and ministry of this congregation and for opportunities for faithful service. We pray for all those who are sick, remembering especially all those who have been ill from COVID-19 during this pandemic and all those who care for them. We pray for all those who are poor or vulnerable. Today we pray for the people of Haiti, whose land is torn by violence and social disorder. We pray for peace and justice in our world. We pray for justice in our own land, so sorely divided and full of acrimony and hatred. 
At this time, I invite the prayers of your hearts during the next few moments of silence. O oh God, you are the healing we need, especially this day. We pray for Thomas, Ellie, Lisa, Kay, Dennis, Miles, Lee, Archie, Melinda, Karen, Kate, Linda, Anne, Pat, Julie, Deborah, Kevin, Lucy, Carol, Donnie, Joy, Megan, and Rick. We pray for our pastor, Rebecca, and her family as they return from their sabbatical and as she resumes her ministry among us. We give thanks that next week we can return to our meeting house and dedicate the renovations that have been done from Project Welcome. Gracious God, we pray for all who are in crisis, all who are suffering from trauma, fear, and loss, all who struggle with mental illness or addiction. We pray for those suffering from loneliness and isolation during this pandemic. We pray for racial justice, that our land may work to overcome the long history of racism and bigotry and move toward ever more equality and equity. O oh God, enlarge our hearts to greater compassion May we listen to the voices of those who are not like us. May we overcome the walls of separation that divide us. Holy One, lead us from fear to faith, from death to life, from falsehood to truth. Lead us from despair to hope, from division to unity. Let peace fill our hearts, our homes, our world, and all of creation. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. And now, as we draw our worship to a close, I want to thank you for participating in this virtual worship experience. Thank you for joining us. We're glad you were here. If you'd like to support our ministry and give a donation or your offering for the week, you can find the link to give online in our videos, YouTube notes. And now, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forevermore. Amen.
for listening. If you'd like to learn more about our church, we invite you to connect with us on our website, www.ucclittlecompton.org. If you'd like to support our ministries, you can find a link to our donation page in the show notes for this episode. We also invite you to share this podcast or leave us a rating or review to help others find us. Our virtual worship team is the Reverend Rebecca Floyd Marshall, Senior Minister, Lily Clark, Project Manager, Cam Clark, Video Production, Alex Floyd Marshall, Audio Engineer, and Charlie Thomas, Readings Coordinator. The horn and string music you hear is performed by the Thomas family. In our church, it is our tradition to end every service with this simple blessing. God be with you till we meet again. By God's counsels, guide uphold you. With his sheep securely fold you. God be with you till we meet again. Go in peace. Thank you.